What's up, guys? Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Curtis. And today, we have part two of our March listener mailbag. We had a ton of good questions this month, like we do pretty much every month. So we will get to all of them here in just a minute. But before we do that, I do want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter, at Glory underscore UGA. And you can email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. You can contact us there. Uh, You can also access all of our shows on a variety of platforms nowadays, including uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Uh, As we continue to try to grow the show and kind of try to improve it on all fronts, it would very much help us if you guys, uh, if you had a chance, if you would subscribe to and review the show on any of those platforms, especially iTunes and SoundCloud. So yeah, anything helps, and we definitely, definitely appreciate it in advance. But now on to today's show. Uh, like last week, we have a ton of great questions, so I want to go ahead and jump right in so that we can get to all of them. All right, the first question, most of these are football-related. Obviously, it's that time of year we're spring practice around. Most of these are football-related, but we do have one basketball question, and it's a big basketball question. So I want to go ahead and start off with that, and we'll get into all the football stuff. I didn't want to start with football and then kind of intersperse with basketball. We'll start with basketball, then we'll hit all the football questions after this. All right, so, Kurt, question number one here. With Greg McGarity apparently bringing Mark Fox back for year nine, is there any reason for hope heading into next season and beyond for the basketball team under the current leadership is a question we got on twitter so i'm just going to throw this one to you i'm gonna let you handle this one first so is there any let's see what he says is there any reason for hope heading into next season and beyond for the basketball team under the current leadership zero um you know i think the biggest thing is we're going to be relying on people that haven't really had the experience they needed to um you know as history under mcgarity hasn't developed a lot of his underclassmen and that's gonna be the case I mean, you're going to be asking more than likely Tyree Crump to handle the ball. And, um, you know, he hasn't gotten the experience he needs to. I mean, he played sparingly at times. Um, and that was Fox's the- fault entirely, the way he handled yeah, exactly. him this year. Um, so that's the biggest part of his offense. I mean, first off, you don't know if Deontay's coming back. Um, well, if Deontay doesn't off- come back, I almost want to say, at least for next year, we have no chance. Exactly. If he doesn't come back, zero chance. But even if he does, I think that really, really hurts us with the fact that you got to think about who are our scorers going to be. Well, Crump's going to have to be one because he's the most natural scorer on the on the team outside of Yontay. Uh, you hope Jordan Harris takes the next step and he showed flashes, but I know he had an injury riddled into the season, so he kind of tailed off there. But he still wasn't a consistent force ever. He could he could knock down a jumper here and there, but he he was he looked like a chicken with his head cut off on the court. You know what I mean? Like half the time Especially he just running around, like he had no clue. He was just like so hesitant out there. He could not handle the ball at all. He was a liability. Yeah, usually you see freshmen, you know, pretty hot shot recruits. I mean, he was, what, number one, I think he was like 130th rated recruit in the country at 129, something like that. So he wasn't the highest rated recruit, but, I mean, he's he, he was a pretty legit player. I think he was actually the fourth highest guy that Mark Fox has signed. We'll get to that in a minute, that he signed over the course of his nine signing classes. So usually a guy like that you think is going to be, you know, a ball hog. He's going to take the ball and is just going to drive it, shoot it, chuck it up, do whatever to get his. But it wasn't that way with theirs. He was, like, hesitant to the point where you pass the ball, throws it right back. Like, nope, don't want it. And he starts dribbling, and you just, like, start freaking out as a fan. Like, oh, my God, dude, what? like, what are you doing? What is your plan right here? So I, I think he's talented, but I, I don't know if I saw enough from him to say I'm ready, that he's ready to take on a leadership role next year, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, and then you got Turtle Jackson, which 
you have any faith in him next year? Not really. He's been wildly inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, he's shown. He's another guy who's shown flashes, like getting to the rim. He, he can knock some threes. I remember, I remember uh, a quote from Fox early in the season, actually, like coming into the season, talking about how the turtle had become our best shooter over the offseason during practice. Like when we went to Spain for the for the summer for a couple of tournaments, a couple of games, and he was playing lights out. But I don't know if that manifested itself on the court. He, and he he could hit some shots, but I wouldn't say that he was one of our top shooters last year. Um, so I, I don't know, man. I like guess then you got Obede, who I'm really high on, but he and he took some really nice steps this year. But depending on what happens with Yante, if Yante leaves, then Derek's going to have to. I mean, we we have always relied a lot on low post scoring under Fox with flex cuts and things of that nature. And Obede, like he, as good of a player as he is, one thing that I, that I, I guess is kind of frustrating for me. Would you call him like a dominant defensive presence in the paint? Not as much as rebounding, yes. Rebounding, yes, but blocking shots, he's not, and he needs to be. I think part of that is like we got think about all the games early in the conference slate, or even early in the year, where we got our bigs got in foul trouble. Like if you go back to the Oakland game, Yante like his homecoming, and he played what like, I think under less than twenty minutes, or right at twenty minutes or something, because he got in such foul trouble. And I think our players were coached to maybe be a little less aggressive, or at least that's how they approached the game with how they were calling the the post. And I think that took maybe away a little bit of Obede's aggressiveness defensively blocking shots. But with his length, that's and just the, the size he has in the middle for us, he's a guy that has to be a major defensive presence for us, an intimidator down there in the post. And I don't think he was that this year. He had moments, but he's got to be more consistent on that front. So if he takes that step, maybe he could be one of those guys who will lead us next year. But I don't know if I've seen that from him yet, not consistently at least. But here's okay. Here's how, I want you, and I want you to tell me if I'm wrong, Kurt, because I, I think you might disagree with me here. My first response to this question is okay. Heading into next season and beyond, is there any hope for our basketball team? The first thing I want to say is I'm going to go against the grain a little bit here, and I'm going to say that Mark Fox. I don't think he's a terrible coach. Am I off base in the saying that I don't think he's a terrible coach? Um. I don't know. I question a lot of his decisions, and that goes into his coaching. I think that he makes. I think there's some things to the coach that he that he does very poorly, particularly the way he handles freshmen. The substitution patterns are just baffling. It's, it's mind numbing trying to figure out what exactly he is thinking with his substitution patterns. And he kind of somewhat admitted that a little bit once we got into the SEC tournament late in the season. But for me, those are two big issues. When you have freshmen, and these are talented freshmen that are JJ was probably the most talented guy on the team. But or at least in the backcourt. But Crub and Harris aren't far far behind in terms of just pure natural talent. And the way he handled them, number one, that hurts this the team this past year's team, because those guys were on the court, they had no confidence. When they got on the court, they were pulled in a second they did anything wrong. Particularly Tyree Crump, who was mismanaged from the get-go this season. But then what it also does is on the recruiting front, and this is where I think Mark Fox falls short. When other blue chip freshmen or blue chip high school prospects see how Fox handles freshmen, are you gonna want to come play for him in the future? See, I think that's the biggest thing. Because think about it, and the game, college football is a lot different. Than, or college basketball is different than football, where you know a lot. Yes, the kids want to go to some of those big time universities usually, but a lot of times you'll see kids will stay home to play for the hometown team because they know either way they're one and done. And when they see what how Fox handles their freshmen, I think it does put some type of fear in the fact that he's not good at coaching up freshmen. We're not going to really be in it for one and done guys at this point in our program's trajectory. We're not going to be in it for one done guys. We can still be in it for top 100 prospects who could who might be here for two to three years. Georgia has a ton of. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I got some stats here for you in a minute because this is where I think 
that Mark Fox falls short. I, and I want to kind of illustrate that. Like so, that guy who's going to Bama from, what, Pebblebrook or something? Yep, Colin Sexton. The guy, yes. you, you watched the, the point guard from, from the McDonald's yep. All-American game who yes. lit it up and did crazy, insane things with the ball? Yeah, mm-hmm. that guy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, that's what I'm talking about. Um, but like, I don't think he's a terrible coach. He's not. I don't think he's a great coach because there are deficiencies in his in his coaching. Like I said, the way you handle freshmen, uh, substitution patterns. I think the offense. It, I, I think he holds the offense back to our own detriment. I think if you think back to like the tournament two years ago, SEC tournament, whereby really by default we kind of had to play an up pace style uh, against Kentucky and really gave them a hell of a run there playing. Up tempo, we we slow it down to the nth degree, and it's just too much. It, there's there's no cohesiveness offensively. Uh, it's just it's not a pretty game. So that's something that I, that I think that kind of reflects poorly on his coaching. And the bottom line is, when you have two All SEC first team players and you still don't make the NCAA tournament, you're clearly not getting the job done. That's the bottom line. But that being said, that doesn't mean that he's a terrible coach. He might not be a good enough coach, which I don't think that he is, but that doesn't mean that he's a terrible coach because there are some things that he still does very well. Now, his deficiencies so clearly outweigh his strengths, but that doesn't negate the fact that that there are some strengths that he does bring to the table that I don't think get mentioned enough. Number one, our team, I would argue that our team always plays hard. I think it's hard to argue against that. If you watch our team, our team is always going to play. We might not be the most talented team. Rarely are we the most talented team. We may not always play well. We may go on seven-minute scoring drops. game this year, we usually at least hustle every play. Yeah, I mean, okay, there, there's a game here, in the, like a game maybe but, once but, or twice yeah, a year. I agree. That, but think about like how he, like after all those heartbreaking losses where you expect the team just to fold, outside of that Bama game, we came back every single time after those heartbreaking losses and came back and played with a fire. That oh, no, that most coaches could not get their players to play with. Like he 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 doesn't he has not ever lost a locker room. And I th- after being here for eight years now, that's saying something. A lot of times your message goes stale, especially when you've only made the tournament two out of eight years. That message can go stale. So he, the players have bought in, they trust him, they play hard for him. And I think that's that's such a huge part of the game. And th- and I think that's something that's underrated. A lot of these coaches now. Is he the best X's and O coach? Probably not. Um, I think our team's our team also generally plays good defense. Kind of goes along with playing hard game in and game out. Uh, but offensively, like, we go on these droughts. You know, our half court offense is pretty abysmal sometimes. We go five, six, seven minutes without scoring. Um, so there there are some issues there. But I think he's a he's a pretty good coach. But here's where I think his problem is. And I just mentioned a second ago. I think Mark Fox is a wholly inadequate recruiter. I, and I don't think there's can, is there any way to defend him as a recruiter. Can you? No. I don't think you can. I mean, maybe someone would try to mount. Nikki V even made that comment yeah. that he had struggled recruiting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you mentioned some of the some of the guys in state that there's a lot of talent in the state of Georgia. And that's absolutely true. There's just as much basketball talent in the state as there is football. I mean, talent. think of all these kids that are going to places like Auburn and stuff instead. Yep, uh, dude. Okay, I'm gonna roll out some of this stuff for you here. So, yeah, in the art, they're they're actually. I was talking to one guy. I will say he tried to defend Fox's recruiter. He said, "Yeah, no, it's really hard when he when he came in the program was in really bad shape after the the whole uh, academic scandal and." Then you've got Dennis Felton who kind of left the program in really bad shape. So, you know, he had to come in and build it back up. And look, But look what we're doing now. We're recruiting well now. Okay. And I'm like, okay, so if you want to define landing the number 35th ranked class and the number 43rd ranked class in the past two years as doing better in recruiting, then you need to kind of reevaluate your standards. 
Because if you say that we're doing better when we land a 35th ranked class, I guess that's that's true when you're talking about in the past, like 2014, we signed the 97th ranked class. In 2015, we signed the 53rd ranked class. And 2010, going back to the early part of his tenure, we signed the 71st ranked class. I guess 35th is a jump up from there, right? But how many basketball games are you going to win with a 35th ranked class? Not twenty this year. That and that that's that's the, okay. The, the two highest rated classes in Mark Fox's tenure: two thousand eleven when we signed KCP, thirty second ranked class, and then two thousand sixteen, which was the Crump and Harris class, the thirty fifth ranked class. That's as good as it's got under Mark Fox in eight years. Now you can say that's an improvement over where he started at seventy one or so, but I mean, come on, guys. I get that's not good enough. That's not good enough, especially when you have the kind of talent that we have in state. The top-ranked guys that we've signed in-state under Mark Fox, okay, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, now in the NBA, he was a 12th-ranked player coming out his year. The guy, a guy that we've got coming in this year, I'm actually pretty high on at Norcross High School, Rashawn Hammonds, who's kind of a combo-four type guy, who really is the kind of player that we haven't really had in the past. A, a true wing that can put the ball on the floor and take it to the rim, and he can also knock it down from the perimeter. But he's the is the number 44-ranked player in uh, in the country this year. Uh, then you got Tyree Crump last year was the 76th rated player in the country last year. Jordan Harris last year was 129th. Then you got Turtle Jackson was 133 coming out his senior year. And then okay, so that's the top five players that we've signed under Mark Fox in state. Uh, you want to guess who number six is based uh, on the 247 composite ratings? No clue. Kenny Games. Houston Kessler. Wow. Can you believe that? I I, I was stunned when I went back and looked at that. He was. Rated 148th nationally. Nationally. He was a four-star prospect coming out of high school. Like, who the hell was watching those games when they rated him? Like, oh my God. I mean, I appreciate how hard you play, Houston, but a top 150 player nationally? Yikes. But those are the top guys that we've signed nationally. Now, you might say, well, that's pretty good. You know, signed KCP, number 12, Hammonds, number 44 this year, Crump, number 76 last year. But let me just give you some context to that. In the last four years... In the last four years, the state of Georgia has produced 25 top 100 prospects. You want to take a guess as to how many of those top 100 prospects we've signed in the last four years? Three. Two. In four years, again, state of Georgia has produced 25 top 100 prospects based on the 247 composite ratings. We've signed two of them. We raised Sean Hammonds this year, Tyree Crump last year. In nine classes, in nine classes, Mark Fox has signed Three top 100 prospects in nine classes. KCP, Rayshon Hammonds, who's coming in this year, and Tyree Crump last year. Let me give you some more context. So Fox has signed three top 100 prospects during his entire tenure in Athens. Now nine classes. Well, Alabama signed three top 100 prospects this year. This year, Auburn has two top 100 prospects signed after signing three top 100 prospects last year and three the year before. Last year, Mississippi State, Mississippi State in Starkville, Mississippi, signed five top 100 prospects in one year. Texas A&M has signed eight top 100 prospects over the last three years. And I didn't even mention Kentucky or Florida there, right? Not even mentioning Kentucky or Florida. We're mentioning Bama, Auburn, Mississippi State, and Texas A&M are all recruiting circles around Mark Fox right now. And my thing is, that's not going to change. At this point, nine years in, you can say he got incrementally better from where he started from, but I have seen no evidence to suggest that he's going to break into that top level of recruiting. And if we don't break in that top level of recruiting, we're there's not much hope 
there's not much hope right now, especially when you consider what the rest of the SEC is doing. You look at Alabama signing those guys. Look at now Auburn hasn't put together on the court yet, but they've signed some elite players. Texas A&M had a little bit of a down year after losing some some seniors last year, some guys that were really big contributors for them. But that's a really talented team. And you got, you, of course, we all saw what South Carolina did. I mean, but these are these are middling programs. You're talking about Alabama, Auburn, Mississippi State, Texas A&M. These are middling basketball programs that we typically kind of hang around with, right? Like, that's typically our class when it comes to basketball. But now, even those teams, those programs are clearly passing us in terms of the talent they're bringing to the program. And that's why I don't have much hope. I think Fox is a pretty good coach. I really do. Because if you – but, I mean, there's some things that he does that, that drive me crazy. I don't think he's a great coach by any stretch of the imagination. Now, I certainly don't think he's as good as we can get. I certainly think we can get a better coach. But I don't think he's – it's all terrible. I mean, I think people just get kind of overdramatic about it and just say, well, he's freaking terrible. I think that's a little strong. I don't think he's great, but he's not terrible. Here, let me give you just a few more numbers to kind of back that up. So here's our recruiting classes over the past eight years. This year, in 2017, we're 43rd nationally. 2016, we're 35th nationally. 2015, 53rd. 2014, 97th. 2013, 58th. 2012, 44th. 2011, with KCP, 32nd. And then 2010, 71st. Well, so that comes out to, over the past eight years, that's an average... Uh, recruiting ranking of 54th nationally, and here's what makes it even worse. Not only are we averaging 54th nationally in recruiting overall, we're averaging finishing 10th in the SEC. 10th in the SEC. But while we've been recruiting so poorly, we've, we've actually finished pretty well. There's a couple years we finished. In 2014, we finished third in the SEC standings. We finished fourth in 2015. Uh, we finished sixth last, or 2016, sixth in 2011. If you take all the seedings that we've got in the SEC tournament over the past eight years, it comes out to the number seven seed. So we're actually outperforming our recruiting. So that right there tells me that Mark Fox is a pretty decent coach with the talent he has on hand. But part of, a, I would say at least half of coaching is recruiting. It has to be. So on one hand, I think he does a pretty decent job with the talent he has on hand, but the talent on hand is not good enough. And that comes back to him. And if we don't improve there, it's just, there's not much hope there. Unfortunate. I want there to be. I'm a huge Georgia basketball guy. Go to all the home games. Uh, it's just I, I want us to be good. I want us to be good in everything. Um, but right now, if you look at what's going on around us in the SEC with our immediate rivals and the, what the kind of talent they're bringing in versus the kind of talent that we're bringing in, I just don't know. Maybe if we had a transcendent type coach, you could win that kind of stuff. I mean, if you had Brad Stevens as your coach, maybe. But we don't have that. We have Mark Fox, who's an okay coach and a terrible recruiter. And an okay coach and a terrible recruiter, that's that's uh, that's a pretty toxic mix when it comes to the question of is the future something that we can be hopeful about. All right, let's move on to the, some football questions here. Uh, let's uh, start here. There's, we have quite a few questions about the wide receivers. So let's start with this one. Uh, I'm hearing from media reports that Godwin and Wims are unguardable during practice. Will this carry over into games? What do you think, Kurt? Uh, maybe a little bit more. I think it has to help with the position. I mean, you got Godwin more than likely finally in the slot where he belongs. Um, so it might carry on because that's the position he's made for. And I think Wims, I mean, he was starting to come on at the end of the season. I think he's only going to get better the more he gets comfortable in this system and the more he gets, you know, intricated to the, uh, you know, SEC play. I think that Wims going to have a breakout year this year. And by that, I mean, like, I'm talking like a 40-catch guy. I really think Wims has that kind of potential. He's got the body for it. He's got the athleticism for it. Last year, he was. We talked about Jordan Harris being a chicken with his head cut off, running around the on the court. Wims was kind of that guy early in the season. 
But as you got late in the season, he hardly came off the field. I don't know if you got if, if a lot of you guys noticed that last year, as the season wore on, the last couple games, it was rare he came off the field. Part of that was because he was a bigger body that could kind of provide some of the blocking on the edge that we were looking for. Some of the smaller body guys we had couldn't really do that. Um, he had a pretty big game against Kentucky, got vertical there um, on one of those plays. But still with a freshman quarterback, he didn't put up the huge numbers late in the season. But I think if Eason ends up being the guy this year, uh, you know, even if it ends up being Fromm, because it ends up being Fromm, he's going to have to prove that he's better than the rising sophomore who's got a full year of experience under his belt. I think Wims, I think we're going to be better off the quarterback situation. So I think by virtue of that and Wims taking the next step and kind of being more comfortable in the system, I do think you're right that he's going to be a guy that's... I don't think there's any reason why he's not going to have a good year for us. And Godwin... Um, I, I've also heard some really good things about Terry Godwin. I just have questions about where does he fit in if Miko Hardman's going to factor in to the equation on offense. Next, actually, I'm going to save that because that's one of the questions we have uh, about the wide receiver quarter with Miko and Godwin kind of both playing the same positions. But I think Godwin, I think he could take a really big step for us this year. Uh, I just don't see any reason why him and Wims couldn't both have pretty solid years. All right, so the next question here. Let's bring in some Miko Hardman conversation. We had a couple questions about him, so I kind of morphed him here into one or two. So, First question is just pretty simple. Is Miko Hardman destined for offense? We kind of talked about this a little bit last week, Kurt, but let's just kind of recap. How do you see that? Is Miko Hardman destined for offense? I think he would be more successful on offense. I said it last week, and I'm going to stick with it. I I, I will hold to the position that Miko can be a good defensive back. But the thing is, it's going to take a while for Miko to become that defensive back. And in the process... If you're going to dedicate him to, to, to that craft and learning the defensive back positions, whether it's star, corner, whatever it is, it's going to take a while. And you're going to sacrifice a good part of his career waiting for him to get to that point in the defensive backfield that he can be a difference maker on that side of the ball. But he can be a difference maker right now on offense. He's just a natural with the ball in his hands. He's, I would say he's probably the most explosive player. I mean, he doesn't know everything offensively right now. Clearly not. But if... You put him on our offense, he's, I think, immediately, in terms of our receiving core, the most explosive player in our receiving core. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. I, I think there's hands down. I mean, having seen this guy play and having seen him in multiple settings, the guy's ex- just absolutely explosive with the ball in his hands. So I, I think that's what you got to look at. I, I do think he's destined for offense. You know, there's a couple, I know a couple of uh, coaches out there, they're up here for the high school coaching camp or the clinic or whatever. And from what I heard from those guys, and you, you're out there at practice, but you don't get to see everything, and you're kind of moving around looking at different things. You don't, you're not watching Miko Harbin the entire time. But the guys that I talked to, so they did not see Miko Harbin take one snap on defense, not one snap while they're there for two practice Thursday and Saturday. So, so maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but that's what I was told. So it looks like we're moving in that direction. And part, you know, we started out in the, the spring with him kind of splitting time uh, between DB and wide receiver. Now it looks like he's really kind of moving more towards offense. I don't want to say full-time yet because I can't confirm that, but he's leaning heavily offensively right now. I think part of that is that our coaches have seen, whoa, okay, now we put him out there. He doesn't know everything, but he can make plays for us. And when we get the other DBs on campus that we signed this class, that we'll have a chance maybe potentially move him over full-time. So I think, yes, he is destined for offense. I think he's a difference maker right now on that side of the ball. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily in his best interest long-term in terms of NFL prospects. Maybe not, but uh, you and I were talking about this a little bit last week, Kurt. Look, our coaching staff is paid to win games right now. And Miko on offense with the ball in his hands, in my opinion, it gives us the best chance to win right now. might not be in the best interest for him in his NFL prospects long term, but it's the best thing for this team right now helping us win at this moment. 
Okay, so uh, next question on Miko here. I told you guys we got a bunch on Miko. People are very interested in what's going on with him. Can Miko Hardman be just as good or better than Isaiah McKenzie in the slot? How do you see that one? Can you repeat that? Can can I, can uh, Miko Hardman be just as good or better than Isaiah McKenzie in the slot? I think he could be better because I think yeah. he's a little bit more explosive. I do think he's a little bit more explosive. I know it's hard to say because like, Isaiah is really explosive and he's got that quick twitch, but Miko has that quick twitch, but he also has that that first steps, that suddenness that McKenzie has, but not like Miko has. And Miko's also a little bigger. I mean, McKenzie, what, five seven, five eight. Um, you got Miko, who's not huge himself, but he's he's pushing 5'11", somewhere right around there, just a shade under six foot. He's got a little more meat to him, a little more physicality to his game than than uh, Isaiah McKenzie has without sacrificing any of the quickness, without sacrificing any of the suddenness, any of that elusiveness, that quick twitch stuff. So yeah, I, I think he, at the very least, could, least could be just as good as McKenzie. Now, he, he's not going to know the offense as well, um, but he's a natural with the ball in his hands. You put him out there, you can run some option routes with him that are pretty simple uh, schematically that he should have no problem with uh, if you give him enough reps. I think, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, Isaiah had a huge year for us last year. So, I mean, he was a, a big-time player. I mean, he clearly was our number one option uh, uh, at the receiver position. So it's hard to say that, that Miko's going to have that kind of year right now. But remember, it'll be, also be his first year on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, and really his first year playing receiver. That's one thing Kirby may mention this. It's very true. Miko played a lot with the ball in his hands in high school, but very little of that was at receiver. Most of it was at quarterback. You're snapping the ball to him. Um, so there's, there's a few things you're going to have to pick up there uh, technique-wise. But yeah, I think he can be just as good, if not long-term. By the time he's all said and done here in Athens, I think he absolutely could be better in the slot than McKenzie was. All right, the last thing about Miko here before we move on. What does Miko's potential emergence mean for Terry Godwin? I think this is an interesting question. How do you see that breaking down? Because we both think Terry's better in the slot. If Miko is going to make the, the move over to offense, he's a slot player too. How do you fit both of them into that scheme? I think it's another thing of what you saw last year. Which was what? Well, Terry's not in the slot because the other guy is better. Yeah. I, I honestly, like, as, as my, I, would you put, if, if Miko is able to pick up the offense, would you put him in the slot over Terry without having seen Miko play receiver for one snap at the college level? If he's better, yes. Yeah. And I, oh man, he's, he's more explosive than Terry. Like Terry, we've talked about this a ton. Like he's, he's a really good player. He's not he's not overly fast. He's not a guy that's going to take the top off of the defense. He works better in the slot. He works better in space where he can use his quickness. His, he's, so, he's just such a fluid athlete. And he can use that to his advantage working in space there. But Miko brings another layer of, of athleticism, another player, another layer of, of explosiveness that I don't think Terry has. So if Miko can pick it up, I think he might prove to be a better option in the slot, at least more, more in the mold of what McKenzie was for us last year than, than Terry. And if that happens, then what do you do with Terry? I mean, what do you do? You just play him out wide, like you put him at the X or the or the Y position out wide, or Z. I guess yes, that's the thing. Do you, I mean I don't know? Do you just have him back up at the slot, or do you put him out wide? What do you do? I think you got to give him at least a chance to get the ball in his hand sometimes, but I don't think he's a legitimate answer out wide. I don't either, and it's it's just not the kind of player he is. I mean, he, I think he can play outside. He's shown that he can do it. But that's just not where he's most effective. And you play him out wide, like you're kind of neutralizing his skill set. He's not going to consistently take the top off of the defense. He doesn't have that type of speed. He's not a big physical guy that's going to go up and win the top of the route consistently. 
he's gonna he's gonna struggle to get off James' line of scrimmage from time to time. When the slide doesn't really have to worry about that as much, really at all. Uh, so he can, he can play outside in a pinch, but I I don't I just don't think that's his best position. I think it's clearly the slot. Now maybe is this a situation where you got to examine? Okay, what we is going out there with four wide receivers? Is that a better look for us? Or is it three wide receivers and one in a, in a tight end? You know, because sometimes we'll we'll go out there with three wide receivers and we'll have a tight end there playing that that fourth wide receiver spot. You got to ask yourself: so Is Isaac Nauta better than Terry Godwin? Who would you rather have on the field in situation? Nauta or Godwin? Would you rather Probably have Charles? because of the matchup. Yeah, I know. So that's you can do more out of it too with him in there, not just receiving. Yeah, I agree. Uh, there's a lot of this is cl- clearly still speculation at this point because we just don't know how Miko's going to develop at that position. But if you look at the trend over spring practice, where he was taking a couple snaps the first day of practice, and now he's where, at least from what I'm hearing, was getting was working almost exclusively at wide receiver. That would seem to say he's picking up enough to where the coaches feel confident that he's going to be a, a contributor for us offensively. If not, they haven't played still have him on defense. Uh, so I don't know. It's going to be interesting, and and you you can play both of them. You can play Miko series, play Godwin series. You can, they, they can be interchangeable. But I do think if Miko emerges as a legitimate threat at the slot. I think that's going to cut into Godwin's playing time, and it's going to cut into his effectiveness. I really do, because uh, I just I don't know where I don't think he's as, as effective outside the slot. I think he's proved it the first two years. He's made some plays here and there um, on the outside, but not consistently. Not like we were hoping. Looking at his, his five star talent coming out of high school, maybe that's unfair because you put all those expectations on guys. But I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how Miko develops and how that eventually plays out. I, mean, I think we need a little bit more information before we can say anything definitive, but I think it's at least worth considering, worth the conversation there. All right, moving on to the defense side of the ball here. Interesting question. I don't know if I, don't, I had a tough time thinking of an answer for this one, but which one of our experienced defensive linemen do you think will have double-digit sacks? Defensive linemen. We're going to take out. We're going to take the outside linebacker hybrid guys out of the equation. I think that's what we're looking at here. I think that's what they were going for. We're talking about like interior defensive linemen, maybe the true five technical guys like Ledbetter and David Marshall. So of all those guys, which one of them do you think will have double digit sacks? At least has the best chance to have double digit sacks. That's an easy answer. It's Ledbetter. Is is that easy for you? Because he was the first one that came to my mind. It's either him or Trent, but you don't yeah. know how Trent shows up. That's that's what I was coming. Out of. I, I, those are two I had in my mind: either Led or Trent. Because Trent's got that pass rushing ability from the interior that we haven't had in a while from a guy. He showed that. I mean, what he had three sacks in the in the bowl game last year mm-hmm. was the MVP of the game. So he showed what he can do when he decides he wants to turn on and be the player that his ability says he should be. But then you've got the whole situation where he still he had to withdraw from classes, and we know he's back with the program. He's at practice, not practicing, but kind of watching. He's there with the team, so it looks like we feel comfortable. He's probably going to be with us this. 2017 season, but in what capacity or at what level is he gonna is is he gonna be ready to play? There was rumors that he dropped a lot of weight. Now I saw him recently, and he he's not as big as he was last year, but he's putting some solid weight back on. I think he'll be fine there. Um, so, I, but there's still some question marks there. But I think you're. I think Ledbetter is the clear answer. And I actually had a conversation. The guy who asked me this question we had a conversation on Twitter, and he didn't. He thinks that Ledbetter is more of a run stopper than he is a pass rusher. You see Ledbetter that way. I think he could do both because he's so versatile, but you notice him more in the run situations because we have so few people that can right. do that. You and you have, but you also have to think about schematically what that position does in our defensive scheme. Yeah, I can tell you from you know people that are close to him that I know um, have said that you know that's what a lot of his, his you know that's his role. Yeah, that's his role is to stop the run. 
that's the five technique in a 3-4 defense. Whether you have an odd man or an even man in front, that's the role. You have outside linebackers, the, the hybrid outside linebacker defense of any type guys. Those that are your pass rushers, guys like Lorenzo Carter, Leonard Floyd, Devin Bum. Those are guys that are seen as your more traditional pass rushers. The five tech is not necessarily a true defensive end. Uh, like It doesn't equate to defensive end in a 4-3 necessarily. Sometimes it can. No, there, like you said, he's there to hold the edge. Right, his job is to, more than anything to set the edge. And so by virtue of that, yeah, it might stand out to you that he's more of a run stopper than he is a pass rusher because that's what he's asked to do. But that's what most of the guys on the interior defensive line are asked to do or on the defensive line who aren't those hybrid pass rushers, whether it's a Trent Thompson, whether it's a John John Atkins, whether it's a David Marshall, whether it's a Daquan Hawkins, Tyler Clark, John Lebeter, those guys first and foremost are run stoppers. That's the nature of their position. So for me, the answer to this question, the easiest answer is none of them. Because I don't think any of them are going to have close to double-digit sacks. Because that's not their role. Uh, they might have a game here or there where they, where they make make their presence felt. And they can they can get some quarterback hurries for sure. But I would lean toward the side saying none of them are going to have double-digit sacks. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah but if, if I had to pick one, I would maybe go Ledbetter. Maybe David Marshall. But I just don't think Lamar... I think with Ledbetter being back for the full year... Because Marshall's playing time would cut down some once John came back last year. And uh, really kind of worked his way into the rotation and became a force. So I, I don't know if Marshall's going to play enough to get double-digit sacks. I think Ledbetter's going to see more of those snaps. Um, so, yeah, I don't think anyone will. But maybe Ledbetter would be the best option there if I had to pick one. All right, Kurt, have you seen – the next question here is a question we got off email. Have you, have you had a chance to check out any of that uh, show QB1 on Go90.com? No. Do you know what I'm talking about, though? Yeah, I've seen previews. Yeah, okay, so if you guys out there aren't familiar with this, so QB1 was a, uh, I think the guy's name is Peter Berg. He was the producer of Friday Night Lights back in the day, which is one of the greatest shows of all time. Still love it. Tim Riggins, my man, forever. Uh, but not like that. But uh, yeah, so this guy put on a, a, he basically did a documentary where he followed three high school quarterbacks around all last season, during their high school season, their senior season. And one Tate Martell, uh, who's going to Ohio State, was one of them. He is a Man, he's a straight punk. At least that's how he comes off on that show. Jake Fromm was one uh, here in Georgia. And I forget the other guy's name, but he was a guy that was uh, much... Uh, he was not nearly as ballyhooed as Fromm and Martell were. Kind of showing that uh, that perspective. So basically you had the underdog who was... I forget the guy's name. It's gonna, maybe it'll come to me. But you had the underdog who was not highly as highly recruited. You had Tate Martell who was kind of the diva, the prima donna. Uh, and then you had Jake Fromm who was like the all-American golden child. That was the way they're basically trying to frame it, um, but it was—it's pretty fascinating. I did not—I have not seen every episode. I saw the first two episodes, so I got to watch a couple more. Got to find some time. But the question I have here is um, from one of our listeners: Have you watched any of the QB One show on GoDaddy.com? If so, what have you seen that makes you excited about Jake Fromm, and what have you seen that makes you question the type of player he is going to be? So, Kurt, since you haven't watched it, I'm just going to take this one. Cool. Uh, yeah. So for me, like honestly. I'm I am well established as having a man crush on Jake Fromm. I, I've said that from day one. I made no bones about that. I haven't tried to hide that. I've I love the guy. I've, from the first time I saw him play a couple years ago at a seven on seven camp, I was like, oh my god, we need to offer this guy right now. And he has not let me down um, at all. And, I, and I'm not sitting here saying I think Jake Fromm. I'm not one of those guys that says he's got to be the quarterback this year. I, actually, I don't think it's in our best interest for Jake Fromm to be the quarterback this year. I think we need to let Easton do it. Unless Fromm is just like so obvious. That to everyone that it's that he's got to be the guy. And I don't know if it, he's going to separate himself that much from Eason. But I think it's in our best interest for Fromm to sit this year in redshirt. We'll see how that ends up playing out. But 
watching the show QB1, it, it kind of just confirmed for me everything that I have always thought about Jake Fromm. Watching him up close in person, uh, seeing him lead his team, and just the way he approaches his craft in, in the game. Uh, he, he is he is the leader that you think he is. By watching that show, he comes off as the leader you think he is. He comes off as the type of player you think he is, the, the, kind, the, the good guy that you think he is. All those things, for me, were kind of reaffirmed by watching QB1. Uh, now again, I've only seen two two episodes. I haven't seen the whole thing, and maybe I can reevaluate that once I go back and watch the remaining episodes. But honestly, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but from what I saw in those two episodes that I that I watched, I had I did not see anything that makes me question the type of player he's going to be. All I saw were those things that got me more and more and more excited for this guy. I mean, in the first episode, just to give you guys an idea, in the first episode. Uh, there is a scene where he goes into full body cramps. Kurt, you know what? Have you ever had anything like that? Full body cramps. Yes. All right. So, you, so you know what I'm talking about? Like where you basically like it hurts to move, like to breathe, because you, you're cramping over your entire body. Well, during two days in the summer, he worked himself to exhaustion. He's that's the kind of guy. He just worked himself over and over and over to the point that he was suffering full body cramps. Went into the doctor, got some IVs, got some fluids, came back, and then. Next day or whatever goes out and goes and practices again. That and that's what I always that's kind of things that I always thought about Jake Fromm. He's that kind of guy. He's he's that kind of worker. He's tough. He's gonna go out there. He's not gonna let it slow him down. So really, everything I saw just kind of confirmed for me what I'd always thought. So yeah, and if you guys haven't seen it, it's really it's really really good. Uh, so I would encourage you. It's it's a weird thing. Go90.com. I tried to pull it up on Roku, but I couldn't do that. So I had to watch it on my phone. But it's worth your time if you got your phone computer. Uh, it's like a Verizon wireless kind of thing, but you don't have to register or anything like that. Just go watch it. Go 90.com, QB1. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. All right, next question here, and this is an interesting one. Um, this one, you hear this from time to time. And the question is, from Deshaun Watson to Trevor Lawrence, why do you think we seem to always miss the best quarterbacks in state? How would you respond to that? Um, You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the coach at the time. You know, I know Kirby – We'll get the the blunt or the brunt of the you know criticism criticism for you know missing on Trevor Lawrence, but a lot of that was laid by the groundwork of Mark Rick and his staff. I mean, you know, as Bobo and them who didn't offer Sean Watson uh, originally, and then when they did, they offered him a wide receiver. Then finally, at quarterback, and they also had didn't make up much ground. Or, you know, they hadn't laid a lot of groundwork with Trevor Lawrence and Kirby Smart and his staff made up a lot of ground. It did a lot to get him to even consider them possibly almost commit to them if he hadn't held off. Um, so, you know, I, I guess you can blame Kirby for that, but in the end, I think it really came down to the coach before and the groundwork that wasn't laid. For me to answer this question, let me first just say this. I really appreciate the question. I really do. I appreciate all these questions. But in saying that, and I mean this with all respect in the world, I do, I kind of disagree with the premise. Like I, I disagree with the premise of the question. I don't think that we always miss the best quarterbacks in the state. Yet you point out two; those are two really big examples of high-level quarterbacks that we missed in state. But there are those are situational. There are situation. There, there. There's context around both those situations that I think, if you really pay attention, you can understand that. Okay. It's not like a systematic thing that we're just missing all these top quarterbacks in the state. Because first off, until very recently, Georgia has not been a great quarterback-producing state historically, at least relative to other states like the Floridas, the Texas, the Californias, those kind of states. Uh, we just haven't been. I mean, in two thousand, yes, in 2018, like this current class with Trevor Lawrence in it, there are three top 30 quarterbacks nationally, three top 30 national prospects overall that are happen to be quarterbacks from the state of Georgia with 
uh, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Emory Jones. And we are a long shot for all three of those. So right now in the immediate, it's like, God, man, we can't. Why, why can't we get a quarterback? Oh, and by the way, Deshaun Watson, he just won a national title. He's from Georgia. He's from, he's from Gainesville, which is an hour down the road. Why are we missing all these quarterbacks? And I get the emotional response to that, but it, it's in, in all due and really in honesty, I don't think that's reality because historically we have not been a great quarterback producing state. Because uh, if you go back and look at it, in 17, we got the number four quarterback. This in this class right now that we just that's coming in this year, we got Jake Fromm, who's the number four quarterback nationally. He's from Georgia. And we chose him over the, who was the number one rated quarterback in the country, in Davis Mills. We chose Fromm over Mills. Um, so I, we didn't miss on our guy there. We got who we wanted. In 2016, there was not one quarterback in the state of Georgia in the top 100 in uh, – in the state of Georgia. If you look at the top 100 prospects in the state of Georgia in 2016, not one of them was a quarterback. And what did we do? Well, we just happened to go to Washington to get the nation's top quarterback overall. In 2015, same situation. There, In the top 100 prospects in the state of Georgia, there was not one quarterback on the list. So I know with the, the name power and the transcendent performance of Deshaun Watson at Clemson, it seems like we are just letting the best quarterbacks in the state get away. But really, it's just two isolated situations. I mean, you had you have this year, this 2018 class with Trevor Lawrence, and you kind of talked about the context around there. Uh, and then you had 2014 with Watson, and both those situations can be, can be explained. With Watson, Clemson just they recruited him harder than us, and they got on him earlier. That was when Bobo. You mentioned Bobo. Like we weren't sure we wanted that he fit with our scheme as a dual threat guy, even though we already had DJ. We had used Shockley earlier in Rick's tenure, but. We weren't 100% sure. We thought Bryce Ramsey was, was going to be the guy. He, he's a guy that we recruited in the previous class before Watson, which was the 2013 class, that disastrous 2013 class. We ended up signing Jacob Park in 2014. Uh, and Watson, has admit, he's admitted that we were we were his favorite. He probably wouldn't end up here if we were, would have recruited him heavily early on in his recruitment. But Clemson got on him hot and heavy early on, and they ended up landing him. And we came in the, we came to the party too late. And that was the problem. That's the context there. And with, and with Lawrence, you go to the situation where we've just signed two top five quarterbacks in successive years. There's no class separation there. And, and you know that all these guys, the, the, the cliche that gets thrown around is that, well, these top level prospects, none of them are scared of competition. Okay, maybe that's true, but it's just common sense when you have two guys in consecutive classes in front of you that are top five prospects at your position, and at least one of them is going to be well-established you're at the flat out prove not only that you're the better option, but your head and shoulders above better than it just makes sense if you're a guy like uh, Trevor Lawrence to go elsewhere. There's no class separation there. So that's the context around that situation. So I just do you get what I'm saying here? I kinda just disagree with the premise. Does that make yeah, sense? I I, I I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean there's just like Georgia, there's it's not usually just a straight up miss. Yeah, I mean there's it's not just like, oh, you know, we went after him since the time he was a freshman, hot and heavy, as hard as you possibly could, and we still missed him. It's not a situation like that. Well, with Watson, we just we were too late to the party. By the time we got into it, he was already well established with Clemson. Clemson was too deep into it. And with Lawrence, you just got the, you got the the two quarterbacks on the roster right now with Easton and Fromm. They've kind of uh, I don't want to say scaring him off is too strong of a word, but discouraging from enrolling here. I mean, I would understand why you'd go elsewhere. I really would. So I, I think by seeing those two names, Deshaun Watson, national champion, Trevor Lawrence, number one player in the country. Like, you, you see that, and you want to say, why can't we get any of those players from the state of Georgia? Why are we letting them get away? It's like, well, it's not always the case. We just signed Jake Fromm, who's the guy that we went after. And typically, there aren't many that any, that many high-level quarterback prospects in the state of Georgia. You usually have to go elsewhere. You go to Washington to get Jacob Beeson. You go to Texas to get Matthew Stafford. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. you gotta you got to look at the whole picture there. All right. Um, 
And the last question here, this one's interesting. I, I, at first, I wasn't sure if we should include this kind of a, a nuclear question, but we'll bring it up anyway. Um, do you think that Georgia uses the pay-to-play method to get recruits? I guess you're talking about, I guess this guy's going about how well we recruited this past uh, class, the 2017 class. So, Kurt, do you think that we're paying players to get some of these recruits? You know, I it, you could always make an argument, but I think this year is different. I think it was the fact that it was Kirby's first full class, which, um, you know, we had a lot of attrition. We had a lot of open spots, and we had some big-time players. That, and you're selling hope. You're selling the future. You're selling playing time, energy, excitement. Yeah, we just had so much to sell this time. It's not like before. Uh, think about it, like even Tennessee when Butch was off to that great start recruiting. It, it you can you can always accuse him, but in the end, it's, you're selling so much playing time. Look at someone like Isaiah Wilson. Where else? You know, he had a chance, a, a chance, you know, a chance to Going play to Michigan. At, uh, Michigan, but he has a legitimate opportunity to start at Georgia as a freshman. You yeah. just have like that to sell. Absolutely, and I mean, he he also is a unique situation that, for whatever reason, I guess in the SEC games on CBS, but with the reach of the SEC, he always rooted for us growing up. So that factored into it, and then you put in, like you said, mix that with the fact that we're losing both starting tackles, and the playing time looks really good for him. The opportunity for playing time. So I, I look this. I really hesitate to even bring this question into it because it's it's. I don't know. It's a no-win type question. I mean, how do you how are you supposed to answer this? Uh, but it, it's a very common thing, like for rival schools. As soon as your rival gets one of the players that you've been going heavily after, what's the first thing people say? Oh, they paid him, yeah, right? I, mean, I can't count the number of times Michigan people accused us of cheating when we landed Wilson. Which is which is just rich when you're talking about Jim Harbaugh and how he flirts with the rules. Uh, man, that's insane. Yeah. I, it, oh, yeah, it, it, at people's houses. Oh, and, you, and they, we got killed by Michigan fans over the supposedly hiring two of his high school coaches. Has that happened yet? Nope. To my to my knowledge, and I, I watch all this stuff incredibly closely, probably far more closely than I should. That hasn't happened yet. It hasn't materialized. And it's not going to. And it's not going to. It's not. And it, even if it did, it's not. Che- it's no different than anything Jim Harbaugh has done. This guy's pushing the rules to the absolute limit. He hired. He hired Pepper's coach. Yep. Uh, yep. Absolutely. So it's not this is nothing unusual, man. Like to, to have programs accuse your program of this, and for our program, to, I mean, there's Georgia fans. You know, message boards. As soon as like when Derek Brown gets uh, when he ends up choosing Auburn over us, what's the first thing? Oh, well, they cheated money, and maybe that's true. I mean, actually, there's some. I don't want to say there's smoke to that fire, but the way he handled that situation and kind of punked our coaching staff, I, that that. It's not something that I was very appreciative. Let's say that, but our fans do it too. Every fan base does. Whether it's Ole Miss, whether it's Auburn, whether it's Bama, whether it's us, whether it's LSU. If if you miss on a recruit, it just makes you feel better about yourself. Say, well, they cheated. The only reason they got him over us is because they they gave him money. And maybe it's true sometimes, but it's just so hard to prove that. But so here's how I would answer that question: Do we use the pay to play method to get recruits? Number one, I'm going to say not institutionally and not with the direct knowledge of our coaching staff, and certainly not in any systematic way. But here's like here's the thing like when you gotta realize guys when it comes to paying players and cheating to get recruits, those most of the time it's boosters. Okay, it's rogue yeah, boosters. It's more like it's usually not from the coaches. It's very rarely from the coaches, and that's what got Ole Miss in trouble. It's because their coaches and their their athletic administration were they've been proven to be involved in that, or at least the NCAA has got evidence that they are suggesting leads them to believe that the Ole Miss coaching staff was involved in paying players. 
Yeah, I mean, think of Auburn. You know, the biggest thing is not the coaches playing, but the Bagman people like right. uh, you know, the whole Pat Bagman article. Pat Dye's Farmhouse, or you yep. know, yep. something like that. I mean, he's not a coach; he's a booster. So, I mean, it's, like you said, it really comes down to the boosters doing it. And too. maybe the coaches have some vague knowledge that they got some rogue boosters out there, but they don't know. They don't know the specifics, but. It's hard to hold a coach accountable if you don't know the specifics. And, and these boosters, guys, a booster is anyone who donates any money to the university. I am a booster. When I buy my season tickets, I make a donation every single year. Technically, I'm a booster. Kirby Smart doesn't know me from Adam, dude. Doesn't know me at all. So if I went and paid a recruit to come to Georgia, that's not, that that's technically cheating. That's our university cheating. Our university would be held accountable for that. But that's not even close to with any direct knowledge on the part of Kirby Smart, our athletic administration, anyone on our coaching staff. So I would, I would venture to say at most programs, you have boosters who go out and do things like that. But that doesn't mean that the coaches are doing that to pay are, – are paying players to get them to come to their university. Now, and when they do start doing that's when you start getting caught. That's when you get stupid. You got, if, if you're going to cheat, you got to do it right and the, lead up to the boosters and have that uh, plausible deniability. You know what I'm talking about? Where you can say, I didn't know. I really didn't know. You might have known that some recruit, that some boosters were doing something crazy somewhere, but you don't have any direct knowledge of it. You, you, you kind of got that cover. You kind of shield yourself there. So, yeah, I think every program has boosters who do crazy things. So that's what boosters do. They're crazy people. They're fanatics like you and I. Not, saying that, not that I've ever given money, any money to any recruit. Certainly haven't. But we're crazy people, and crazy people do crazy things. And I don't think you can connect that directly to the coaching staff and whether or not they are paying – players to to sign on the dotted line all right well that's it for the march mailbag we've enjoyed it and feel free to go ahead and start singing questions for the april mailbag anytime between now and the end of the month you can hit us up on twitter at glory underscore uga or you can email us at glory uga podcast at gmail.com uh, check back with us on Thursday as uh, we're going to be examining some interesting comments made by ESPN's Greg McElroy in regards to comparing our Jacob Beeson and South Carolina's young quarterback Jake Bentley. And uh, just to kind of tease it real quick, McElroy's comments were not so favorable to our guy, and it's not the first time I've heard him say it either. It's just the most recent and most definitive uh comments that he's made in regards to Bentley versus Eason. So we will dissect what McElroy had to say and kind of give our take on it. So check back later in the week. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. Thanks for listening, guys. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>